Hello, my name is Tyson Benson. I'm the host of the Alternating Current podcast, a podcast centered on technology and innovation. In this podcast, I look forward to speaking with individuals that can provide us with unique insights into topics relevant to technology and innovation, ranging from discussions with or about inventors, innovative companies, and policies relating to technology and innovation. I wanted to kick off the inaugural podcast with someone that has unique insights into Nikola Tesla, Mark Seifer. If you don't know who Nikola Tesla is, he was an inventor, electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, and futurist. He's probably best known for his inventions relating to alternating current. And yes, the Tesla Automobile Company took its name in his honor. Our guest is an expert on Nikola Tesla, Dr. Mark J. Seifer has lectured at West Point Military Academy, Brandeis University, at the United Nations, the Open Center in New York, and Lucasfilm's Industrial Light and Magic. With articles in Wired and Civilization, he has been also featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, The Economist, and the Wall Street Journal. He has also starred in the five-part miniseries, The Tesla Files, now available on Hulu. Mark has also appeared on American Experience, Coast to Coast Radio, NPR, and the BBC. His biography, Wizard, The Life and Times of Nikola Tesla, has been translated into eight different languages and has been called a serious piece of scholarship by Scientific American, revelatory by Publishers Weekly, and a masterpiece by best-selling author Nelson DeMille. It is also highly recommended by the American Association for the Academy of Science. And additionally, coming out at the end of this year will be his new book, Tesla, Wizard at War, The Genius, The Particle Beam, and The Pursuit of Power. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. What got you interested in Tesla? Well, it's really kind of a crazy story. I was teaching courses in parapsychology and I had a friend who was teaching courses in UFOs and he was teaching in Rhode Island and he was also teaching in New York and he went down to New York and he went into a, one of the uh, stores there and he looked at the uh, magazine section and there was magazines on rifles, magazines on poodles and he looked in the back of the magazines and it was a company called Countrywide Publications. So since he was in the city, he walked into the guy's office in the old days, in the 1970s, you could do that. There wasn't an armed guard, you know, before stopping <laughs> going in there. And uh, he said, I want to do uh, two magazines. I want to do one on ESP, and I want to do one on, he called it Ancient Astronauts. And uh, the guy said, look, you could do it on, uh, you know, toilet seat covers. I don't care what you do it on, as long as you can sell 20,000 copies a month. So Howard came back, Howard Smuckler. And he said, I'm now editor-in-chief of these two magazines, ESP and um, uh, Ancient Astronauts. So I became a writer in 1976, and I was writing articles on the, for both magazines. And at the same time, I had read this uh, book by a guy by the name of Lapsang Rampa. He was supposedly a Tibetan Lama, and it was called The Third Eye. And it was his autobiography, and it is a great book. It's a really good book about this young child who has uh, the ability to see auras and he can see auras for the Dalai Lama in Tibet 
and he can see whether or not it's a bad person or a good person going to meet with the Dalai Lama. And and then when you you know you you find out in the third book that uh, that Lapsang Rampant is no longer alive, and that this guy by the name of Cyril Hoskins, who was a British plumber, uh, is the actual author of all these books. And uh, his story in the third book is that Cyril Hoskins wanted to die. He was uh, uh, depressed because of World War II. And Rampa, the real Rampa, uh, needed to live, but his body was dying. And so they swapped souls in a sense. And uh, so Cyril Hoskins went on to the astral plane and Rampa took over his soul. And just a very wild story. Uh, but he's written 15 books and I highly recommend them. I mean, they're really, really good. So I went down to New York to do research on Rampa because I was going to write an article on him. And I came across a book which was about avatars. One of them was Rampa. Another, of course, was Jesus Christ. And another one was a guy by the name of Nikola Tesla, who this book said, 1976, said he was born on the planet Venus. And he'd come to the Earth to give us all these inventions, the induction motor, fluorescent neon lights, wireless communication, remote control, robots. His name was Tesla. And I thought, I mean, I thought the Rampa story was far out, but this is ridiculous. Nobody could have invented all those things, and I never would have heard of the guy. So I was in the library, and uh, I found an article by him on high-frequency phenomena from the turn of the century. I said, geez, it's actually a real person. And when I came back to Rhode Island, Howard said, oh, Tesla here. He gave me Prodigal Genius, which was a biography of Tesla. And I, after I read that book, I thought it was, I highly recommend the book. It was one of the best books I'd ever read in my life. But there was a lot of gaps in the story. And I, at the same time, got a book of his, of his patents. And it's a thousand page book of his lectures, patents and articles. And once I saw all the patents, there was a, uh, on the induction motor and uh, fluorescent lights and, you know, and everything else, uh, wireless communication. Um, I, it was actually arc lighting. I said to myself, God, this is a huge story. How could his name disappear from the history books? So he became the subject of my doctoral dissertation. And throughout the early 1980s, I worked on the doctoral dissertation and I just kept going. And I probably could have gotten a, my doctorate after writing one or 200 pages, but I just kept going. It was a 700 page dissertation. And thank heavens that Stanley Krippner, who was my mentor, was kind enough to read all that stuff. And that morphed into the book Wizard, which was published in 1996. And now it's in its 22nd um, printing, uh, Wizard, The Life and Times of Nikola Tesla. And uh, it's just, that's really how I got into it. Tesla invented a number of spaces. He wasn't just a one-trick pony. For example, his inventions ranged from the AC induction motor, that is the basis for the Tesla automobile, to X-ray technology, to wireless power. Tell us a little bit more about his inventions. Well, what's so amazing about Tesla, and you mentioned this, is that he invented in so many different realms. Like he invented the induction motor. He invented what I simply call the hydroelectric power system, the ability to trans uh, transport electrical power hundreds of miles. Uh, he invented fluorescent and neon lights. He invented remote control and he invented the beginning of robots and also wireless communication. And also, we will get into it, I'm sure, the, uh, the basis of cell phone technology. But it all started when he was in college. When he was in college, everyone was using direct current. And the problem that he realized is that 
electricity by its nature changes its direction of flow. So electricity is actually going backwards and forwards uh, at many times a second. So think about trying to make a water wheel go in one direction if the river was flowing downstream, then upstream, then downstream, then upstream at many times a second. Can you see how ridiculous it would be to try and make that water wheel go in one direction? Yes. Yep. Well, that was the problem. So what they did was they eliminated the upstream. So all you had was the downstream. And that's what direct current is. So that device is called a commutator. And what the yep. commutator did was eliminated the upstream, but you lost 90% of the uh, electrical power. So when Tesla was uh, you know, just starting out and Edison was ruling the world, everyone was using direct current. And so with, with, with direct current, electricity drops off over distance and you can only send electricity about one mile. And then only for lighting. You couldn't run a refrigerator or a vacuum cleaner or any of that kind of a radio, anything like that. You know, it was only uh, for lighting. So if your house was near the power station, you had a bright light, and if, your and if your house was a mile away, it was a dim light. And these were coal-operated because there's only so many waterfalls. So if you wanted to, I live in New England, if you wanted to, you know, uh, and this is where T Edison was and Westinghouse was, they, were, they had 3,000 power plants in, in the early 19, in the early 1880s. Um, you had three different major companies. Elihu Thompson had a company, and... Tom Edison had a company and George Westinghouse had a company and they each had about a thousand power plants. So they each had about a thousand hamlets and towns that they were lighting up um, and, and they were all co-operated. So you can imagine what the pollution was um, at the time that Tesla showed up. And so Tesla realized that the commutator uh, probably didn't need to be there. There had to be a way to make that water wheel go in one, go circular even though the electricity goes backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and many times a second. And so his genius, it took him five years, was to figure out if I use two currents out of phase with each other, I can time it so that the water wheel will go in one direction. And that's what's known as the rotating magnetic field. And that's the basis of the induction motor. And that's what's behind the hydroelectric power system. So to just to put this into perspective, before Tesla, you could only send electricity about a mile, power dropping off over distance, and you could only light homes with that. After Tesla, you could put one power plant at Niagara Falls, and you could electrify the entire Northeast. You could send electricity to Boston, Philadelphia, New York, Chicago, uh, Montreal, Toronto, all from this one Niagara Falls, and you could run uh, factories. So to me, it's like comparing a horse and buggy to landing on the moon. That's the difference between uh, the Edison system and the Tesla system. And that's what happened in 1897. So what's interesting about it is that Tesla was uh, unknown until that moment. He, at that moment, he became world famous. So my doctoral dissertation had to do with, geez, here's a guy who invented the electrical power system and his name totally disappeared from the history books. What the heck happened? Because by 1976, his name was was completely gone, and and that's really you know his first major invention. A lot of this stuff he had and he obtained patents on 
it was the basis for the computer. I mean, we have uh, one of the, the this teleautomatics uh, patent for, means for wireless communication or communication. It contained the basic principles of what most computer engineers or electrical engineers would recognize as the logical AND circuit, which is a very important element in the processor today. In addition to and as you mentioned, you don't have you have other individuals that may be received uh, credit where uh, such as Shockley, uh, who developed the transistor. But the basis for all this goes back to Tesla, doesn't it? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, when he harnessed Niagara Falls in, in 1897, he was already working on wireless communication. And one of the things I discovered when he gave his speech, his speech was cut off. Um, he was hugely popular, and they were applauding. And uh, uh, Stetson came in; he was working for J.P. Morgan, and said, "We got to catch a train." And and so I had to look at, you know, what was the missing part of the speech? And the missing part of the speech, believe it or not, was he was saying, "As great as this is, this is Niagara Falls, which is unchanged today." He said, "As great as this is, I got something even better. I can, I'm going to be able to jump continents by wireless communication." And and Stetson had read this ahead of the time was smart enough you know to uh, take Tesla off the uh, off the stage before he he uh, you know would have uh, really hurt his, his credibility at that moment uh, but what Tesla was doing was he was working in already in wireless communication in the eight in the mid 1890s and he realized there was a problem with interference he had a, a, a remote controlled torpedo uh, which he called it was submersible it was an actual boat and he realized that if I send a signal out to tell this boat, the, the, the torpedo, to blow up another boat, someone else could hit it with another signal and then make that torpedo turn around and then maybe bomb my own boat. So what he did was he figured out how to combine frequencies. And he was using something called continuous wave frequencies. He's the inventor, really, of radio waves. We say they're Hertzian waves, but they're really not Hertzian waves. They're, they're Tesla waves. So this concept of... Uh, multiplying frequencies is the basis of encryption, radio guidance systems, and cell phone technology. So by 1901, when he's working with J.P. Morgan, he's saying to Morgan, I can create an unlimited number of wireless channels. At that time, Marconi didn't even know what frequency he was using. Uh, and I found uh, actual quotes from 1901 from the people working with Marconi say, we were just guessing. We were just sending impulses out. The difference between Marconi and Tesla was that Tesla was sending continuous wave frequencies, which is the basis of radio, TV, and being able to send pictures you know, through the air, whereas Marconi was simply sending pulses. He could do dots and dashes. He could do Morse code, and he couldn't do multiple channels. It was all on one channel. So even as late as you know, 1912, the sinking of the Titanic, they were still using Morse code, uh, but... Uh, but eventually they would, they would go over to Tesla's. So when Tesla had his remote control boat, he was already combining frequencies, and that was in 1898. I, I really believe that his invention of the remote control uh, boat, the, the Telautomaton, that should have given him a Nobel Prize uh, because it had so many inventions inside it. And you mentioned the computer. One of the things I realized, I'm, I'm working on a new book, a new book, is, uh, is called Tesla Wizard at War. I get into uh, this remote control boat. Um, is that he set it up with a rudder that went in one direction and a spring that brought it back. So if you turn uh, the power on, the rudder, let's say, 
would go to the left, and if you turn the power off, it would it would go to the right. So it was an on-off switch which which uh, steered the boat. So Tesla had come up with the idea of steering a, the complex idea of steering a boat by simply turning the, the switch on and off. And that is the basis of the AND gate, which is the basis of all computers, the binary code and so on-off switches. Um, so the more switches that he put onto the computer, the more bytes of information he would have. So he really created the first computer uh, in 1898 based on this principle. And then, as you mentioned, Shockley and other people, you know, uh, took over later on. Uh, but that 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 was all there in, in 1898. Now, and one of the most interesting that I pulled out in some of my research, when he submitted a patent application uh, for one of these, what we'd call now as a robotic device, the patent examiner didn't actually believe it once it came across the examiner's desk. The examiner actually went to the lab and checked it out for himself to see if this thing actually works in accordance with what uh, Tesla was uh, putting in to his patent application. And sure enough, he did obtain a patent because uh, from my research, it appeared that the examiner was astounded that actually it was working in accordance with what uh, was said in the patent application. Yeah, that's pretty close to the way I understood it. The way I understood it is actually he took the boat down to Washington, D.C., and, and showed uh, the guy there, his name was Seeley, uh, how to do it. He also brought another remote control boat to Chicago when he was on his way to Colorado Springs. And he, by that time, he had advanced the boat even more. That was 1899. These boats cost, uh, according to O'Neill, $40,000. And that's, you know, that was in those days. I don't know what that would be today in today's dollars. But one boat, he spent $40,000 on, on that. And... Uh, that's a tremendous amount of money. Could you discuss Marconi a little bit more? Yeah, Marconi, um, there's a lot to, to give Marconi credit for. And, and it's, it's kind of a sad story. Uh, the, when Tesla was lecturing in, in, uh, at the Royal Society in London, this was in 1892, he stayed with Sir William Priest. Priest was uh, the head of the post office there and priest had been uh was involved with telegraphs and priest had understood that on a rainy day uh, one telegraph wire uh, would transmit information to another telegraph wire through the wet ground of maybe a mile away so priest understood the role of the ground and the ground connection uh before tesla and uh priest was working with uh, kelvin and they were doing experiments um with with wireless even uh before marconi but anyhow, Marconi was studying some of this stuff, and he eventually hired Priest. And Priest, this was in the 1890s, and Priest said, well, why don't we use Tesla's equipment? We can adapt that equipment. And Marconi said, nah, I don't need that stuff. I can do it all on my own. And uh, so Marconi was using a spark gap apparatus, which was a, an extension of Heinrich Hertz's invention. And Tesla, as I mentioned, was using continuous wave frequencies. So Tesla was never dealing with Morse code. He, was, he wanted to transmit voice and power. Marconi could only transmit Morse code. But Marconi told Priest, no, I don't need Tesla's stuff. And then in 1901, Tesla is reading the electrical journals, and Marconi writes an article and says, yeah, I've got a wireless system. You know, you, uh, what, what some people are using, we, we call it a Tesla coil. 
And he went on to describe, you know, his, his experiment. So he, he admitted right on, you know, in these published articles that he'd pirated Tesla's apparatus, but he only pirated some of it because he was still doing dots and dashes and using the spark gap apparatus. So all through the early 1900s, Marconi expanded tremendously and he could tra transmit uh, electricity across the Atlantic Ocean. He could transmit it hundreds of miles and thousands of miles. And he had wireless stations on every continent, South Africa, uh, South America, North America, all throughout Europe. He had hundreds and hundreds of wireless stations all over the place. And all Tesla had was this one giant big tower uh, that he never completed. So Marconi got the credit you know, for being the inventor of the radio uh, because he really had this huge empire and he eventually uh, took so many patents that were that based on Tesla's that by the 1920s, you know, it was all, it was Tesla's system, but it would be very hard to, to figure it all out. That, that really was Tesla underneath it all. And that's really how Marconi got the credit, but really it was, it was all based on Tesla's system. So we'll, we're going to jump forward then to, uh, we, he was out, uh, Tesla went out to Colorado for a while. And uh, at that time, we'll actually just kind of talk a little bit about his a couple of years out in Colorado Springs. Yeah, in 1898, uh, 1899, I mean, he went out to Colorado Springs, 1899. Yeah, and he was trying to transmit electricity around the world. And he claimed that he did. Um, and he's got something called the Colorado Springs Notebook. And it's about 250 pages. It's all his notes. It's a very interesting story about the notebook. If you read the O'Neill book, The Prodigal Genius, which was written in 1944, John O'Neill knew Tesla for 40 years. And O'Neill had helped create the myth that Tesla did everything in his head. Partly Tesla uh, dealt with that, you know, promoted that myth as well, that, it, that he ran the machines completely in his head. And, and I'm sure he did. I'm sure he wrote, you know, he, he did run machines in his head. But he also worked it all out on paper. And, he, and his, the mathematics in the Colorado Springs notebook makes your head spin. You're all figuring out the size of the earth, the speed of light, and the length of the frequencies, and on and on and on. Very complicated mathematical equations. So when they discovered these, when they were going through all of Tesla's papers in, in Belgrade, uh, Dr. Marinchinch, who was the uh, uh, head of the museum at the time, said, we should publish these. This was in the 1970s. And the Serbian people loved the idea that Tesla figured all this out in his head and that he, you know, he didn't work any of this stuff out on paper. So they didn't want to publish it. And Marincin uh, said to the, to the higher-ups, he said, no, this makes him even greater, that he figured that stuff out in his head. And he also worked it on the paper with all these mathematical designs. So he had to force uh, his, the power of his personality to overturn this uh, tendency to hide uh, what Tesla could do. And they published Colorado Springs Notebook, um, which has all these calculations. And uh, so in there is, you know, an explanation of how Tesla transmitted energy. And the big difference, uh, which he gets into in the Wardenclyffe notes too, is that Marconi is sending electricity mostly through the airwaves. And he, he does have a ground connection, but Tesla is trying not to send energy through the air at all. He's trying to send it all through the earth. And he, and he has an aerial, but mostly it's going through the earth. So he's using conduction, whereas uh, Marconi is using radiation. And with conduction, Tesla felt he could transmit 90-something 90, 90 percent of the power 
from one place to another by uh, you know lengthening the the uh, the wavelength. So, for instance, if he had this huge tower you know out on Long Island, which he called Wardenclyffe, which is 60 miles from New York City, if he wanted to run machinery in New York City, he would create a wavelength that's 60 60 miles long. If he wanted to run machinery, you're in Michigan right now. Say that's you know 1,400 miles from Long Island. He would create a wavelength 1,400 miles long, so it would land in Michigan, and so he could transmit all the electrical energy uh, from Wardenclyffe uh, to Michigan. If he wanted to send it to uh, um, San Francisco, it'd be 3,200 miles long, so he'd create a wavelength 3,200 miles long, and that's that was his plan to transmit electrical power from one place to another. And, and basically jump continents, as he was trying to say in, in 1897 at the Niagara Falls speech. And, and so this actually then kind of brings us, because a few years later, I believe that uh, J.P. Morgan and Tesla uh, came, came together. And as you alluded to about the Wardenclyffe Tower, what was that? Um, because he actually, I, I believe, would take some of his findings from Colorado Springs and the goal uh, that at Wardenclyffe was to use the Earth's own electrical charge and use it to resonate at a frequency that could be amplified, as you're kind of alluding to, uh, for for various purposes. Yeah, in fact, when we did the show, uh, uh, the Tesla files, uh, Travis Taylor, I, I you know I worked with him, but he he did this this part of it. Um, was we set up uh, two Tesla coils about, they were only about 30 or 40 feet apart, but through resonance, he, we were able to run a boat from one, from, you know, sending one, um, charging up one Tesla coil, the energy would then go through the earth to the other Tesla coil. And uh, that was attached by wires to the boat and we ran the boat. So that was a, an actual thing over a weekend. I mean, was, this is was a very rapid thing, but I think Travis Taylor's achievement was uh, monumental in that he was able to prove that you could send electricity through the earth. I experienced this, I don't know the exact date, I was a kid, so it was probably about 1962, something like that, 1961. I was 12 or 13 years old. And we had, these were called crystal radio sets. Uh, a crystal radio set has no, you don't get a plug-in, you get all the electrical energy from the radio tower. And my dad was an electrical engineer. He fixed TVs for a living for a while in the 1950s. And he helped me build it. And it's hard to believe, but this is what, it's all it had. It had a, a, a jar with wire wrapped around it. And uh, it had a way to change the, the electrical energy in the air to a direct current, which could be attached to earphones. And I used acid to, uh, uh, cut uh, along the all the the wire. You know, picture a, a jar with wire wrapped around and around and around it, and it, it, that is your dial. And and if you if you cut through the the uh, insulation, you have different stations. You mark them along the jar. And so we put this aerial way out of the. We were on the second floor. My my room was up upstairs. And we went out and we put this aerial out the, out, uh, you know, the window, and it didn't work. And my father said, geez, I don't understand why it's not working. He's walking around the room, and then he snaps his fingers. He says, I got it. And he takes another wire and attaches it to the radiator. <laughs> and that was our ground connection. 
And I listened to the Muhammad Ali fights, you know, on that thing. Um, so it worked. And it was very clear to me that the ground was playing a huge role in, uh, in the, this crystal radio set. So the more you study Tesla, the more you realize he's saying that energy being sent over the airwaves is dissipating so rapidly. You know that when you're, you're driving along the highway, after about 30 miles from the radio station, it disappears. You lose it. Uh, but if it's going through the ground, he felt that he could pinpoint it to any point on the globe. And that's really what uh, Wardenclyffe was all about. He wanted to transmit electrical energy, electrical power all over the, all over the planet. And, uh, and so that really is the basis of it. It's going through the ground. But unfortunately, there was a little bit of a falling out that he had with J.P. Morgan, probably a little bit of a money issue. And um, it's interesting that uh, it really seems that Tesla could have monetized a little bit more, actually became uh, more of an Edison in the sense of uh, maybe he didn't have the business savvy, but he'd always seemed to take the funds and then continue inventing uh, for the betterment of humanity. Would that be a fair statement? Yes. It's, it's, it's a very sad story, but... Tesla was living in the Waldorf Astoria uh, at the height of the Gilded Age. And he had created millionaires in today's dollars. They were billionaires based on his inventions. And Morgan, you know, who owned a big share of General Electric and also AT&T, was benefiting greatly from Tesla's inventions. So Morgan had given Tesla $150,000 to build this tower. And he was going to try and transmit electrical power, electrical signals, really, from Long Island, Wardenclyffe, to England. And Morgan wanted the stock prices when he was on, on he would go to Europe every year. He wanted the stock prices uh, when he was in uh, England and maybe France. And Tesla said he could deliver that. And then Tesla read this article uh, that Marconi was stealing his patents. So he doubled the size of the tower because he figured if I double the size of the tower, not only will I be able to send electricity to uh, Europe, but I'll be able to send it to the Pacific. I'll be able to cover the entire globe. So by just doubling the, the uh, size of the tower, um, the, the revenues would come in you know, geometrically at a much higher rate. And that's what he was trying to tell Morgan. But Morgan saw it as a breach of contract, which indeed it was. And Morgan gave him the full 150000 and Tesla then had raised an additional 50000 on his own. And he was pleading with Morgan to give him more money to finish the tower. And Morgan just simply would not relent. But worse than that, Morgan prevented Tesla from, uh, from getting other investors to come in. For instance, he was living with Henry uh, Clay Frick in the world of Astoria. And Frick was worth $60 million. Now, where did Frick get the $60 million? He got it from Morgan because Frick was in uh, partnership with uh, Carnegie. And so when uh, Morgan created U.S. Steel, Carnegie got like $360 million and Frick got $60 million. It was a billion-dollar deal. And so Tesla is living with a guy who's worth $60 million and needs another 100000 or so to complete the tower, and Morgan won't let him uh, get that. So when you talk about the money issue, it, you could say he was a poor businessman, but also he was looking at it. This was pocket change to these guys. Morgan was spending $100,000 on paintings in those days. So even though Tesla, you know, he was a gambler and he was, he was living in that world and he was saying, come on, you know, 
another hundred grand. It's nothing to you. Let me finish this thing. And Morgan just wouldn't relent. He was so angry that Tesla had uh, had breached the contract. And he was also afraid that maybe it threatened uh, his copper mines and his rubber plantations and his lumber yards because a true wireless system would essentially do away with, with wires. And so Morgan had other empires that were at stake. So very complicated, but that's kind of really what happened. And unfortunately, we found that maybe through the business motivations, we found that JP Morgan eventually did and tried to discredit then Tesla after uh, Wardenclyffe. Um, I didn't find any real evidence of that. I, I, I'd be interested to know what evidence you have that he actually, uh, you know, did that overtly. Uh, okay, I guess I, so. So what I was referring to some of the older uh, papers that uh, maybe we'd uh, that had been talked about and calling, uh, you know, equivalently uh, Tesla fraud or you know whatever the there was some bad press that came out about Tesla about that same time, and so uh, maybe some of the theories I guess that people were putting out was that J.P. Morgan had a hand in it, and maybe he didn't, but. There was some animosity then around that time after the falling out at Warren Cliff. Is that would that be a correct statement? Yeah, you know what's very interesting to me is that Morgan supposedly burnt all of his papers at his death, and Tesla, you know, was very good friends with Ann Morgan. They were friends all the way through the 1930s, and also through J.P. Morgan Jr. and J.P. Morgan Jr. funded Tesla's turbines, bladeless turbines, gave him at least twenty thousand dollars in 1915, 1916, around there, they were not privy to the animosity that existed between Tesla and Morgan. It was kept hidden. Now, Morgan's closest associates, uh, like Frick, uh, people like that, uh, and Stetson, I'm sure knew that Morgan, you know, did everything that you're saying, you know, don't invest with this guy, you're going to lose money, who, who knows what he's really up to, that kind of thing. But it was kept secret because his children didn't, did not know this. And I think, you know, they had a sense of honor in an odd kind of way. You know what I mean? That uh, that this was between those two people and they kept it uh, pretty much underneath the surface. Um, and even uh, John O'Neill, the, the guy who wrote Prodigal Genius, who knew Tesla for 40 years, he didn't know any of this. He was guessing. And that's what I solved when I wrote Wizard. Uh, I got access to the papers that, that, that O'Neill never saw. And if Tesla hadn't kept all these papers, we would never know this because Morgan's papers were burned. You think some of those papers included the blueprints to Wardenclyffe? It could very well be, yeah. Now that you mention it, yes, yes. Because we looked all over Prometheus Films. Uh, Kevin Burns was the producer. We spent a lot of money going literally all over the world looking for the blueprints for, for Wardenclyffe because we, we did uncover the, the tunnels, which had never been seen before. Uh, they're about 50 feet under the under Wardenclyffe, and uh, we were looking for blueprints. And they're mentioned in one of the, one of the uh, uh, court documents, but we couldn't find them. Yeah, no, that, that was the one thing that there was the only the one mention, even uh, the person that was uh, the very famous person that actually built the lab out there, there was nothing in that in that person's estate or pretty much anything with regards to what happened to the Wardenclyffe Tower uh, blueprints. Yeah, yeah, I think you're talking about Stanford White, who was the architect. Yes. 
White yep. was the most famous architect of the day. He's my fav favorite architect. I live in Narragansett here in Rhode Island. And Stanford White built the, the we call them the, the, the towers in Narragansett. It looks like a little castle with a tunnel that you go underneath. It's so beautiful. It's right on the water. He built Rosecliff Mansion in Newport and the Capitol, which is a beautiful uh, building in uh, Providence. It looks like the Capitol in, in Washington, smaller version, all white marble. And he built uh, the Tennis Hall of Fame, which is an Art Deco building. Um, so White was, in my mind, you know, the greatest architect of the 20th century and the late 19th century. But the guy who actually physically built the tower, his name was W.D. Crow. And I got the letters between Crow and Tesla. And unfortunately, there's no blueprints in there either. And there's, there's no details. Uh, they're just surface letters, mostly from the 1930s, reminiscing about their friendship and building the tower, you know, 30 years earlier. So you're right. It's just the great one. That's one of the great mysteries. What have happened to the blueprints? You kind of talked about the, I guess, maybe call it participation or Tesla's involvement maybe in three different wars. Can you kind of go into that a little bit and some of the interesting points that you'd uh, found out from your uh, research? Yeah, this is the new book. It'll be out at the end of the year. It's uh, going to be published by Citadel Press, the same Kensington, the same people that publish Wizard. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I fill in blanks and I cover a lot of new area too. Uh, but I focus on three major wars. And the first war was the Spanish-American War. And Tesla had his remote-controlled torpedo boat. And he this was the beginning of drone warfare, that this uh, uh, torpedo would go out on its own and ultimately seek out an enemy vessel and, and blow it up. And it would be able to see and detect rocks that are in the way, so it would go around rocks. He had selenium cells and stuff. He never got it totally to that point, but that was the idea of it. And drone warfare today is, you know, is all based on that design. So when, in, as World War I was developing, uh, Tesla was working with John Hayes Hammond Jr., who has a castle in Gloucester, um, Massachusetts, and his father, uh, Hammond Sr., had funded Tesla's remote control boat. And, and uh, Hammond was the, uh, basically the father of radio guidance systems. He took all of Tesla's work that, you know, with Tesla participation and worked on radio guidance systems. So I get into a lot of the uh, history of that. And also Tesla at this point, as World War I was brewing, was working for the Germans. Telefunken was... Uh, the major wireless uh, uh, station in uh, in America was called uh, at the Sayville plant was called Atlantic Communications. So there were two big wireless companies. There was Telefunken and there was Marconi, and there was a lot of animosity between the two. But Telefunken had placed um, their wireless uh, uh, devices on U.S. Navy ships, and the Assistant Secretary of the Navy at the time was Franklin Roosevelt. So. Marconi sued during World War I, uh, Atlanta Communications, which was Telefunken, and, and Marconi sued the U.S. Navy for patent infringement. You know, you talk about chutzpah. He, had, he was using Tesla's system, but he was suing, you know, uh, Telefunken. So Telefunken and FDR needed uh, Nikola Tesla to testify on their behalf because he was the real inventor of all of this technology. So what happened in 1915, 
they all met in Brooklyn in, in the courthouse. Marconi came in on the Lusitania and uh, uh, Braun was there. He, was, he shared the Nobel Prize with Marconi, Ferdinand Braun for wireless communication. And Jonathan Zenick came over on a, on a boat too. And they were, these two German, you know, Zenick and Braun were working for Telefunken here in America with Tesla. And Tesla was working with uh, Zenick teaching them about the ground waves and the importance of the ground connections. And I've got all that detail, you know, in, in the new book uh, called Tesla, uh, Wizard at War. And so they're all there meeting and then World War I breaks out and Marconi's got to go back. Now he goes back under an assumed name on a different ship because the Lusitania got sunk. So there is the slim possibility that one of the reasons they sunk the Lusitania was they thought they were killing Marconi, who was the big uh, competition in, in the field of wireless. So that's World War I. And then when I get into World War II, that brings us to the whole idea of the particle beam weapon. And what I've discovered, I've gotten recently declassified uh, documents from Russia that Tesla was negotiating with Joseph Stalin himself. And he was also negotiating with higher ups in, uh, in Great Britain, uh, generals. Uh, and I've got the names of these generals. Um, and also with Franklin Roosevelt. We discussed this in the Tesla files. We found a letter from Roosevelt saying, uh, I want the lowdown on Tesla. And uh, this was as, as World War II was brewing. And so what's so incredible here is that, you know, they, they had this myth of Tesla, this old man kind of withering away, you know, in, in the Hotel New York was this old guy, but that wasn't the case at all. He was negotiating with the very, top echelon of all these three countries, so all three allies, as the, the Nazis were, were taking uh, over Europe. Why do you think, without maybe getting a little bit too much into the book, and maybe it's in the book, but your thoughts on why he was maybe negotiating with Russia, uh, because he did become an American citizen uh, years earlier and uh, proclaimed his love for uh, America. Was it uh, I guess, what are your thoughts or maybe your research has uh, given you an educated guess on? I think it's very complicated. Um, Russia had a company called Armtorg Trading Company. Armin Hammer was uh, the American who helped uh, create Armtorg. And this was a trading arm of the Soviet Union in the 1930s. We were helping the Soviet Union, even in their five-year plan, they had droughts and things like that. And, and uh, FDR was sending money at an aid to the Russians. And the Russians were working with uh, Henry Ford. They were working with General Electric. They were working with all top American companies throughout the 1930s, even though they were communists and even though they were against us uh, politically. So when Tesla was negotiating in the early 1930s, mostly 1934 um, with Russia, he was not doing anything that was uh, dastardly or, or sinister. Uh, but, uh, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. He was giving them the particle beam weapon. Um, but in, but when you put it in the context of at the same time they were working with GE and Ford and these other companies, uh, and he, you know, and he had an invention to sell them. Uh, so that's really the situation. One of the things I uncovered was that Stalin started murdering people a year after his, his uh, dealings with Tesla. Um, but we knew nothing about that. I, I don't know if you know anything about like the Hollywood 10, but there were these 10 communist uh, writers in uh, Hollywood 
uh, very famous screenwriters. And uh, there were a lot of uh, people that were on the side of the, the idea of communism, sharing the wealth. Had they known how horrible that Stalin really was, I don't think they would have ever been uh, associated with him. Uh, but that really is you know, some of the background of, of why Tesla was negotiating with Russia. I think he also did it for money. You know, he, It was a way to make a living. Well, yeah, and certainly, uh, and this kind of uh, overlaps because, of course, his death was near the end, what, 1943, I believe? Yeah, 43. January 7th or 8th, depending upon which documents you review. And I, I guess that actually then brings us to the missing papers because it still wraps into FDR because maybe not a lot of people uh, realize, but uh, Harry Truman wasn't the only vice president for FDR. He was actually the one that just was happened to be in office uh, when FDR passed away. Prior to that, there was Vice President Wallace, and Wallace actually did have a scientific background, was uh, born and raised in Iowa, uh, same with me, and I, I think that we've been able to uncover, or you uncovered through some of these declassified uh, materials that... Uh, there is a gentleman named Spanel that was in uh, telephonic communication with uh, Dr. Lozado, uh, an advisor to uh, Vice President Wallace. Yes, this is all very interesting to me. Uh, when uh, we created the, the, the show, The Tesla Files, I had a lot to do with the creation of the, the storyline. Um, when Tesla died, I think a lot of uh, your listeners will probably know this. There's something called the, the Trump Report. Now, John G. Trump worked at MIT, and he was hired to look at Tesla's papers after he died. And when I wrote The, the Wizard, I have a whole section on that where I get into, uh, you mentioned Wallace, uh, and I'll go back to Wallace in a minute, and Lozado. Um, but I, I really do a good job of tracking it all down. But in making this television show, I looked at the letterhead that Trump used. Now, Trump as it turned out, is actually John, uh, President uh, Donald Trump's uncle. He's his father's brother. He was born in 1907, and he died, I think, in the, in the early 1980s. Um, but he's Trump's uncle. Now, I knew that the name was the same, but I didn't realize this until about, I don't know, about two or three years ago. And so in looking at the letterhead, I began to figure out all the people that were involved with with, uh, with Donald uh, Trump's uncle at this time. And one of the people who was not on the letterhead was Vanny Bush. Vanny Bush was in charge of all secret weapons development for uh, the United States. And Bush had gone in uh, to meet with, um, with uh, President Roosevelt. And the one person he wanted with him was Vice President Henry Wallace. And the reason was because Wallace was a scientist. And he wanted to tell uh, Franklin Roosevelt that if we go to war, we need science to beat the Nazis. So I began to do a lot of research about Vanny Bush. And it turns out that Vanny Bush was the dean of MIT when Trump was uh, started out as a physicist you yep. know, there at MIT. And in 1931, when Tesla turned 75, Vanny Bush wrote Tesla a happy birthday letter. And I've got the letter, you know, all the details of what he says. And, and so, and he started Raytheon Corporation. Um, so there's a, all that very interesting, you know, connection. Uh, 
So the, the connection with Henry Wallace was Wallace uh, was backing Vannie LaBush in the meetings with Franklin Roosevelt and Wallace knew Tesla. Uh, Wallace sent condolences to, Tesla, uh, after, you know, to the uh, churches when Tesla died. And uh, Abraham Spanell, who was a good friend of Tesla's, was meeting with one of Wallace's associates, Dr. Lizardo, trying to say, we've got to get this particle beam weapon. Or suppose the Nazis build the atom bomb. How are we going to protect ourselves from an atom bomb? If we had a particle beam weapon, we could shoot down a plane. If the plane is carrying the bomb, it's going to come in. Or if it comes in on a boat. So there were these two top secret weapons that were being thought about and developed at this time. Uh, one was, you know, the atom bomb. The other was uh, Tesla's particle beam weapon. One of the point I wanted to make about all this is that when they uh, constructed the atom bomb, in those days, this is in the early 1940s, they spent in those days billions of dollars. Now we're talking about trillions of dollars in today's dollars to build the bomb. So people say, you know, maybe, you know, Tesla's weapon wouldn't have worked, this or that. Well, no one put any real money into it. No one put any real, you know, that kind of effort into it. I think Tesla's particle beam weapon probably would have worked, but you probably would have needed, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever to really work it out just as they did with, with the atom bomb. Let me read something to you dated uh, January 30th, 1943. As a result of this examination, it is considered my opinion that there exist among Dr. Tesla's papers and possessions, no scientific notes, description, hitherto unrevealed methods or devices or actual apparatus, which could be of significant value to this country or which would constitute a hazard in unfriendly hands. And that was uh, a technical aide named John G. Trump. Right. Trump looked through his papers. Now, Tesla had 200,000 letters and documents that went to the museum. And uh, he had scientific papers. And Trump looked all through the, all of those documents, came up with that conclusion after spending one weekend uh, looking through his stuff. <laughs> you know, I've been looking through his stuff for 40 years. <laughs> And uh, he did it through a weekend and concluded there was nothing to, to his papers. So, you know, uh, that's what we're dealing so with. So around the time of his, uh, his death, I believe even on the Tesla files, they talk about that there might have been uh, some government agents that were a few rooms down that were staying in the, the New Yorker uh, hotel. And after he'd passed, there was a, a nephew, uh, I believe, Sava Kasanovich that uh, attempted to try and well actually did uh, obtain a locksmith and uh, and got in there but there seems to be a little bit of confusion or uh, different stories on who was able to uh, get into the tesla safe in his hotel room and maybe the other places that he had it around at the other uh, hotels what can you tell us about that well, Tesla had a particle beam weapon, and he claimed that the particle beam weapon, that a, that a prototype of it, was at the Hotel Governor Clinton. Um, I have mixed feelings about this. Tesla, you know, the, people have flaws in their personality, and one of the flaws in Tesla's personality was he didn't pay his rent very, very often. The reason why he lost Wardenclyffe was he owed back rent uh, to the Hotel uh, um, Waldorf Astoria. He owed them almost $20,000 in back rent. Now, I think what happened was that uh, 
the Waldorf Astoria was owned by John Jacob Astor, who was a backer of Tesla's. And Astor was the richest, just about the richest man in, in uh, New York City. He was the largest landowner in New York City. And Tesla stopped paying rent for a while. And I think that had Astor not died in the Titanic, he would have continued to live uh, free. But once Astor died, then the uh, Balt who took over said, well, geez, this guy owns all this back rent and everything else. And it took him about seven years to, to kick him out of the, uh, or it took five years to kick him out of the hotel. So Tesla would, went from one hotel to the next. He then lived in the Hotel Pennsylvania. He left there owing them 2,000 bucks. And then he led, lived in the early 1930s in the Hotel Governor Clinton, and he owed them $400. And he gave them what he said was the particle beam weapon. He said, keep it in a safety deposit box, and it was worth $10,000. And after he died, John G. Trump went there and went to the Hotel Governor Clinton and opened up this box. And he was afraid that maybe it would explode because he didn't know exactly what was in there. And it was just an electrical device worth a couple hundred bucks. It was not the particle beam weapon. So one of the big questions was, was Tesla just scamming the Hotel Governor Clinton or was there really a particle beam weapon that was removed and nobody knows about it? Uh, one of the things I noticed in my, in my new book, which I discovered, there is a, uh, he was a thief. His name was uh, Willis George. He was hired by the OSS and uh, by the U.S. Navy and uh, Army Intelligence. And he would go into different dip diplomats' places and he would steal documents from enemy uh, people, enemy uh, ambassadors. And, that's what, and he wrote a book about it called Surreptitious Entry. And he was one of the five people that went in with Trump to look through uh, Tesla's papers after he died. So it's not totally out of the uh, realm of possibility that he could have gone to Hotel Governor Clinton and taken the, uh, the prototype and given it to the OSS because they were interested in this uh, top secret weapon. So that's all part of it. But another thing was Sava Kasanovich was the ambassador from Yugoslavia and he was the heir to Tesla's estate. So he, he, was, he was owed all of that, uh, but they, they sat on it for 10 years. So what I tried to do in, in the Tesla files was come up with situations where we know that they hid uh, Tesla's papers. And one example of this is became the Osprey helicopter airplane. Um, you go look at the history of that, you'll never see Tesla's name, but he has a patent, which he, which he patented in 1921 and then later in 1929 on what he called it the flipper plane, but it was a took off like a helicopter and then rotated into the airplane position. So that was one concrete example where the government basically, or Bell, Bell, or Tel, uh, Bell Labs, uh, took Tesla's stuff and used it. So the question is, did they remove any papers before they shipped them off to Belgrade? And I think you can make a good argument that, that some of that might have occurred. Yeah, and actually, yeah, the Tesla files does cover that because they actually go to one of the, the military sites and actually fly in Osprey and uh, show off the drawings and discuss uh, the similarities. Basic concept is there. It takes off like a helicopter and then can convert its uh, propellers into moving like a, a airplane. So, and that is clearly shown in the patent drawings that you referenced there. Now, yeah. one of the things I think that you would also kind of found out is this ozone generator. Uh, what's that about? Well, in 1896, Tesla patented 
an ozone generator. Tesla was very interested in uh, human uh, health. He wrote an article in 1901 in the Century Magazine, and he talked about don't drink polluted water. One of the reasons cholera would uh, be spread was by polluted water. He also invented electrotherapy machines. Uh, I used to go see a chiropractor. Hopefully, I don't have to go again. But when I used to go, you know, they hook you up to an electrotherapy machine and send electricity through your muscles to, you know, to re relax them. That's Tesla's invention. And another one he had was an ozone generator, which he understood was used uh, uh, for uh, disinfecting wounds. It was used in nineteen in World War One by the Germans in particular to disinfect wounds. And uh, in 1984, when I spoke at the first International Tesla Conference, I saw Dr. George Freebot speak. And Freebot talked about that he, as a medical doctor, was working with a man whose, whose body was filled with tumors. And he injected a combination of oxygen and a little bit of ozone. So usually the, uh, the ratio is 97% oxygen, 3% ozone. And these tumors uh, disappeared. And I th thought, you know, come on, that sounds ridiculous, you know. So I did some research and I found an article in Science Magazine by three scientists who said that ozone therapy had thwarted the development of, of tumors in a cancer patient. So I put both of those pieces of information in my book, which was published in 1996. So on page 341, I talk about Freebot. And on page something like 519, I have the end note about the, in science. So we jump ahead to today, and we have this uh, uh, horrible situation with the coronavirus. And I thought, well, geez, maybe ozone therapy's got something to do with uh, uh, solving this problem. That led me to two doctors, Dr. Rowan and Dr. Robbins, uh, Robert Rowan and Howard Robbins. In 2014, these two guys flew to Sierra Leone in Africa where there was an Ebola outbreak. And they taught the medical personnel there ozone therapy, which is injecting, it's called oxygen ozone uh, therapy. You inject 97% oxygen and 3% ozone into the, into the body. And what the, what the oxygen does is it stimulates the immune system and the ozone is able to disable the ability for the virus to become a parasite. There's a sulfur molecule that all viruses or most viruses use to attach themselves to the host. Ebola has between a 60 and 90% death rate. In other words, if someone has Ebola, they're probably gonna die. They stayed long enough, <clears throat> excuse me, to see five people cured. And so when they came home, they talked about this, that they had helped cure Ebola with ozone therapy. And now I jump ahead from 2014 to today, six years later, they now did wrote a paper in the Journal of Infectious Diseases, which is a peer-reviewed paper, where they discuss how uh, this combination of oxygen and a little bit of ozone will disable the coronavirus, separate the, the uh, sulfur molecule from the, uh, uh, from the virus, make it unable to attach itself to the host. And they are suggesting that, that this therapy uh, will be an excellent treatment for curing, uh, you know, uh, the uh, coronavirus. So I've been writing letters trying to get uh, Governor Cuomo in New York, uh, trying to get Governor Raimondo here in Rhode Island, uh, trying to get Dr. Fauci. I've got to the M NIH and they, they're now doing some studies of ozone therapy uh, at the NIH. I just saw a report 
yesterday when the medical doctor sent me. And then uh, the real coup is that in uh, Ibiza, Spain, which is a little island off the coast of Spain, uh, if you Google Ibiza and Corona, you will see that uh, they are using ozone therapy and they're successfully treating uh, uh, people that are, would be dying from this COVID virus that are now being healed. I also created a YouTube. If you simply uh, Google my name, Mark Cipher, cure for ozone, I mean, cure for corona, uh, ozone therapy, you'll see a nine minute video where I discuss all this. So I think what's so interesting about this to me is that Tesla understood that ozone had curative abilities. It led to a man, Dr. Freebot in the 1980s that I, that I met, who was using it to treat cancer patients. And today I think it is, you know, the way out for, uh, for us dealing with this horrible tragedy of this terrible disease. And the main reason, as I say, is that ozone, when done correctly by doctors that know what they're doing, these guys have been doing ozone therapy for, for 30 years. They're not, they're not like they just started yesterday. Uh, Dr. Robert Rowan and, and Dr. Howard Robbins, that this particular uh, uh, disinfectant will disable the virus, make it unable to replicate inside the person. And, and that really will, will lead to a cure. And what's amazing, even a few years ago, there was an NIH paper out publicly available that talks about how it can be used. And I believe it was at that 97% and 3% ratio, but it helped out potentially, um, or it was within the context of SARS. So there has been the history and scientific papers, as you mentioned, that discuss it, and even within uh, the bacterial realm as well. So and certainly then it all ties back Tesla developed and patented an ozone generator. It's just fascinating how this, the wide spectrum of wireless communication, AC induction, it just, it's fascinating. I mean, it's, wow. He is truly, uh, I guess, a man out of time, uh, some would say. Yeah, he's, I think, you know, he's kind of the Leonardo da Vinci of today. I mean, he didn't just operate in one area. You know, we talked about, uh, you know, before we were on the air, but, you know, Cyrus McCormick, you know, and, and the, the cotton gin. You know, we know one guy, one invention, boom. Tesla's got inventions all over the place, and he's still leading the way even today. Um, one other uh, thing that I get into in, in the new book is Tesla's dynamic theory of gravity. And uh, what I have discovered is that um, I never understood what gravity was. Um, and, you know, I would always joke about, you know, why don't the people of Australia fall off the planet? And, you know, it's kind of a joke, but on some level, it seems like, you know, they're upside down, they should fall off. But what is keeping us, you know, on the planet? Mm -hmm. and, and Tesla's idea basically was, is that all of matter is absorbing energy all of the time. That's what his dynamic theory of gravity is. So if all of matter is absorbing energy all of the time, uh, then the Earth, since it's so much larger than a human being, will be absorbing a tremendous amount of energy all the time. It's this influx of energy, which is what we call gravity. So when you jump up and you land back onto the Earth, it, it's not that you're being attracted by gravity. It's you're in the way of this influx. That's a totally different way of looking at uh, what gravity is. And it makes, to me, it makes a lot of sense. 
And so in my research, I read, uh, you know, Isaacson's new book on, on Einstein, and I, I read it a couple of times, and it turned out Einstein spent the last 40 years of his life trying to combine gravity with electromagnetism. Well, I began to think about this, and I was thinking, if all of matter is absorbing energy all the time, what is it doing with all that energy that it's absorbing? If it transforms it into electromagnetism, that's a way to combine gravity with electromagnetism. That's grand unification. So what I just described in the last two minutes is something that Einstein spent 40 years of his life trying to do. Um, I, I, I can't do it mathematically, but I, I believe that Tesla, his theory of dynamic theory of gravity, his theory on ozone uh, research um, and uh, wireless communication, all that, this, he's still leading the way today. They're still opening new doors and possibilities for science to discover whole new uh, realms. And this brings us to, you know, Wardenclyffe. We now own Wardenclyffe, thanks in, you know, to 99% of the reason to Matt Inman and the Oatmeal website. He set up a website, and over the course of a week, we raised $1.4 million from uh, 33,000 people from 109 countries to get the money to, to buy the land out on Long Island, we want to build a science center there. We need about 20, 25, 30 million more to, to totally uh, redo that area. But people from all over the world now are attracted to, to Tesla. Um, that's one of the things that I learned when we raised that money was from 109 countries, 33,000 people. Uh, so Tesla's now a world figure. And as you mentioned, one of the main reasons is because uh, the, the people that have Tesla Motors decided to name the car after after Tesla, and, and it's because Tesla in 1904 said we should run a car on an on, on electric motor. It made more sense uh, than, than the system that they were using. So he's still a beacon for us. And uh, the more we study him, the more you know these doors open up for us in terms of research for the possibilities for the future. Where would uh, people be able, if they're interested, to learn more about this or donate? Uh, where would they be able to go? Jane Alcorn, uh, A-L-C-O-R-N. Uh, at, at Wardenclyffe is the way to go. You know, you can just uh, Google Wardenclyffe and uh, Mark Alisi is another uh, person highly involved uh, in uh, raising money for the Science Center. I think, I, I think that, the, that, you know, we're in this COVID problem right now, but I think the state of New York should kick in a few more bucks sure. um, and, and help really transform. It's right near Stony Brook. So uh, to make it a big learning center. So, you know, if you get on the, on, uh, the internet and look for Wardenclyffe, uh, the Wardenclyffe Science Center will show up. And that would be a good way to donate. This kind of brings us kind of to our final topic. Is Tesla underappreciated? Uh, yes, I really believe that he is underappreciated. A lot of people, though, have been very inspired by him. You know, if you, if you Google... Uh, Tesla caricatures or something like that. You see all these drawings of Tesla. He's inspired a lot of artists. Um, he's, he's shown up in a lot of movies. Uh, he was in Tucker uh, a number of years ago. Um, he was in La La Land, uh, not Tesla himself, but uh, uh, he shows up that way, uh, the, the, the Tesla, uh, um, Tesla coil, you know, towards the end of that movie. Um, and uh, the current wars was just out. They, Kind of miscast who Tesla really was, and, and Ethan Hawke made a movie about Tesla, and we've been working on a movie too. We have 
22 episodes written with my partner, Tim Eaton. He was uh, worked for George Lucas Industrial Light and Magic for 20 years. In fact, I spoke at uh, ILM. I gave my little Tesla talk uh, uh, there. And uh, so we've got 22 episodes written. We're hoping to get to Netflix or Amazon. Um, so I think he'll be resurrected. But he's, he is underappreciated. And unlike, you know, John G. Trump, who can look at this stuff in, in two and a half days and conclude there's not much more there to it, uh, I'm still learning. Every single day I'm learning something new because of, of Tesla and what he's doing. Uh, and the biggest eye-opener for me right now is understanding more about the immune system and how this new ozone therapy might be really uh, the way to get us out of this unbelievable uh, moment in our lives where the, where the planet has simply stopped uh, because of this little virus. You had mentioned a few movies. Um, the Prestige is also one that uh, includes um, a characterization of Tesla. Um, and it uh, stars uh, Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman back in, it was a movie back in 2006. It's actually a very, very interesting movie. I really did enjoy it. And uh, they do introduce the Tesla character uh, in Colorado yeah. Springs. Yeah, well, the thing about that is, why did they choose David Bowie to play Tesla? That's, yes, 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 that was I, I the... the answer. The, the answer oh, is... Oh, okay. well... David Bowie played uh, The Martian and The Man Who Fell to Earth in 1976, which was based on the story that I told in the beginning of our talk, uh, that The Man Who Fell to Earth was Tesla, but they changed it to a Martian. And then Bowie starred as The Martian in 1976. In fact, the first article I ever wrote in 1976 was called Tesla, The Man Who Fell to Earth. Um, so they... so. Uh, <laughs> the people that made the prestige understood the connection and so they resurrected bowie and they and they, they started him as tesla in the prestige it's a very it's, great fun movie. It, it is a great fun movie and the insider knowledge there is is pretty unparalleled that i i did not know that it all comes back around what, what would be the question you want to ask him if you could one question one question i'd want, want to ask nikola tesla um, well, I have a friend who wants me to get WhatsApp. He said, I'm not going to email you anymore unless you get WhatsApp. So I would ask him, how do I get WhatsApp? I mean, I think he'd be very interested in the internet and uh, the whole new world. Um, and, and I think, you know, he still wanted to transmit power uh, by means of wireless. So I think that would be ultimately the ultimate question is, could you really lay it out exactly, precisely uh, why we should still want to transmit electrical power? Uh, by means of wireless. I think that might be a question that he would certainly want to answer. But he'd be totally into the internet. He'd be totally into uh, WhatsApp and all the new things that, that are here today. In conclusion, what's the title of your book again, and when will it be available for those that, that are interested? Yeah, the book is entitled Tesla, Wizard at War, uh, The Genius, The Particle Beam Weapon, The Pursuit of Power. And it'll be out at the end of the year. And again, it's published by Citadel Press, Kensington, the same group that publishes Wizard, The Life and Times of Nikola Tesla, Biography of a Genius. Mark, this has truly been enlightening. I truly appreciate your time. This has been fascinating. And I hope that people will soon come to appreciate Tesla a little bit more if uh, they hadn't either heard of him or only heard of them because they think why is uh, somebody named after a car so uh, with that though I truly truly do appreciate your time today thanks so much Tyson I appreciate it too as you can gather 
Mark has a deep and intricate knowledge of Tesla. Make sure to check out his book if you are interested in learning more about Nikola Tesla. It is deeply researched and includes much more about the life and times of Tesla. That will do it for our first episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider rating and hit that subscribe button to be notified when future alternating current podcasts are posted.